Well, it stopped raining. <laughs> when, I left, uh, when I left Brooklyn this morning, we were having a deluge, and I thought we're going to have to start building another ark. Um, but thank goodness for public transportation, I made it down here just fine. And I'm delighted to be back here uh, with all of you. Um, poetry. Why poetry? Why not poetry? Why bother? Um, do, did all of you get a handful of poems when you came in? You want to just wave them and make <laughs> Okay, great. Um, there are more. Um, I made sure there were plenty so that you could just reach in and grab out a handful of them. So think of them as a bouquet of, of poems that I, that I brought to you. Um, poetry is, 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 has been so important to me in, in, in my life, and I've, uh, of course, as an adolescent, wrote very bad poetry um, and kind of gave up on it, uh, but I never gave up on appreciating it and finding all the moments in my life when um, it seemed like there was a poem that really expressed what I was feeling, which doesn't mean that I haven't given up on writing poetry, I just don't publish it in the high school newsletter anymore, so I, I, I've learned from that. Um, so, as you might imagine, I'm going to share a good deal of, of poetry with you, uh, ones that, that I particularly like, and uh, also try to convince you that uh, poetry is ethical and that it can teach you to be a better person. So I want to start off with a poem by Elizabeth Alexander um, because she helps to answer that question, what is poetry? And it's called Ars Poetica Number 100. I believe. Poetry, I tell my students, is idiosyncratic. Poetry is where we are ourselves, digging in the clam flats for the shell that snaps, emptying the proverbial pocketbook. Poetry is what you find in the dirt in the corner, over here on the bus, God in the details, the only way to get from here to there. Poetry, and now my voice is rising, is not all love, 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 and I'm sorry the dog died. Poetry, here I hear myself loudest, is the human voice. And are we not of interest to each other? So that's what poetry is, and of course we, we all have different definitions and can read uh, many different definitions of it and, uh, and come up with one that fits for us and why we love it or hate it or like it maybe just a little bit, endure it, put up with it. Um, how does one write a poem? And for that, of course, I turn to another poem written by Jay Leeming. Um, and this is called Man Writes Poem. And this takes place in Brooklyn, so it's particularly dear to my heart since I lived there. Man Writes Poem. This is just in. A man has begun writing a poem in a small room in Brooklyn. His curtains are apparently blowing in the breeze. We go now to our man Harry on the scene. What's the story down there, Harry? Well, Chuck has begun the second stanza and seems to be doing fine. He's using a blue pen. Most pe poets these days use blue or black ink, so blue is a fine choice. His curtains are indeed blowing in a breeze of some kind, and what's more, his radiator is whistling somewhat. 
No metaphors have been written yet, but I'm sure he's rummaging around down there in the tin cans of his soul and will turn up something for us soon. Hang on, just breaking news here. Chuck, there are birds singing outside his window, and a car with a bad muffler has just gone by. Yes, definitely a confirmation on the singing birds. Excuse me, Harry, but the poem seems to be taking on a very auditory quality at this point, wouldn't you say? Yes, Chuck, you're right, but after years of experience, I would hesitate to predict exactly where this poem is going to go. Why, I remember being on the scene with Frost in 47 and with Stevens in 53, and if there's one thing about poems these days, it's that, hang on, something's happening here. He's just compared the curtains to his mother. And he's described the radiator as roaring deep with the red walrus of history. Now, that's a key line, especially appearing here somewhat late in the poem when all of the similes are about to go home. In fact, he seems a bit knocked out with the effort of writing that line, and who wouldn't be? Looks like, yes, he's put down his pen and has gone to brush his teeth. Back to you, Chuck. Well, thanks, Harry. Wow, the life of the artist. That's it for now, but we'll keep you informed of more details as they arise. <laughs> now, to how many of you out there does that sound like a poem? <laughs> okay. And to how many does it sound like some wild raving of a lunatic? <laughs> okay. But you know, poetry can be a sonnet, it can have a particular form, but it can also be this kind of an on-the-scene action, right? So I'm wondering, if you, as you look at your poems now, do any of you have a poem that is about poetry itself? In other words, a self-referential poem, or something about the writing process, or anything close to that? Anyone? Great. Um, let's see. I, you know, I forgot to ask if we have um, uh, a mic, but okay, terrific. Wonderful. Thank you. So, if you aren't too embarrassed and too put on the spot, could you read that poem to us? Life Story by Tennessee Williams. Oh, lovely. After you've been to bed together for the first time, without the advantage or disadvantage of any prior acquaintance, the other party very often says to you, tell me about yourself. I want to know all about you. What's your story? And you think maybe they really and truly do sincerely want to know your life story. And so you light up a cigarette begin to tell it to them, the two of you lying together in completely relaxed positions, like a pair of rag dolls a bored child dropped on a bed. You tell them your story, or as much of your story as time or a fair degree of prudence allows, and they say, oh, 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 oh. 
<laughs> Each time a little more faintly until the oh is just an audible breath. And then, of course, there's some interruption. Slow room service comes up with a bowl of melting ice cubes. <laughs> or one of you rises to pee and gaze at himself with mild astonishment in the bathroom mirror. And then the first thing you know, before you've had time to pick up where you left off with your enthralling life story, they're telling you their life story exactly as they'd intended to all along. And you're saying, oh, <laughs> oh, 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 oh. Each time a little more faintly, the vowel at last becoming no more than an audible sigh. As the elevator, halfway down the corridor and a turn to the left, draws one last long, deep breath of exhaustion and stops breathing forever. Then, well, one of you falls asleep and the other one does likewise with a lighted cigarette in his mouth. And that's how people burn to death in hotel rooms. Hmm. Thank you. You read that so beautifully too. <laughs> Thank you. So I don't know how much it, it's about poetry. I saw the line, what's your story? And mm -hmm. of course, my hand shot up, but. Right. Thank you. And, I, and thank you for being so brave and breaking the ice, because I know that now others will, will, will be right there as well. Thank you so much. So that's about sort of an experience, right? A relationship. And we can find ourselves in that, um, especially in the O-O-O, right? Um, as, as we had that exchange. So thank you so much. Well, why do we even care about poetry? And, and why isn't it a bit obscure at times, although I think that, that that one was particularly not obscure. It was about a real, real, real experience there. Um, there's a wonderful book out now that I highly recommend to you, and I, I finally, uh, I, I read it on the train ride up here. I, I knew about it. I had asked for it for my birthday, and my children gave it to me, and I had the opportunity to read it. Um, David Orr is um, a, a poetry review editor. He writes reviews about poetry for the New York Times, and his book is called Beautiful and Pointless, A Guide to Modern Poetry. And what's, what's so lovely about it, I think, is it really speaks to our experiences as the lay reader. In other words, poetry is often written for other poets. Um, and you, you can read Poetry Magazine, and you can learn all about it, and you can really admire the form. But the, the challenge, I think, is that poetry has left a lot of us cold. Um, we, we really don't feel like we understand it. And here's an example of that. Um, the fellow who reviewed David Orr's book, David Kirby, had written a book, uh, a, rather a poem called Broken Promises. And he went to a group of high school teachers who wanted to discuss the poem. And uh, he said, well, what do you think that it means? Now, bear in mind the title of the poem is Broken Promises. So the all, one teacher says, it's about your own poems. Another shouts, I think it's about your children. And they all seemed a bit crestfallen when he said, no, it really is about the promises that we break. <laughs> and so he was wondering if perhaps we're just reading too much into it. And maybe the reason that poetry doesn't have the big audience that poets would hope for is because we sort of approach it as a way of breaking a code. There must be something here that we don't understand, rather than assuming that we probably do. Why? Because we're human beings, and we have those kinds of experiences. And so the point of it is really, you know, what reaches us and what makes a difference to us. 
Um, another uh, article that I read about this comes from the Chronicle of, of Higher Education, and, and there's a, a, a teacher who says that uh, Elizabeth Harris uh, Sagoser, her article is called Poetry the First Milk. And she talks about how her, when her first child was having difficulty going to sleep and she didn't, she tried everything. She'd pulled every trick out of her mother handbag and nothing seemed to work. And then she just started to recite a poem to her. And the poem, as it turns out, um, was one that you, know, you might not think to read to a child. And it was Christopher Marlowe's 16th century poem, The Passionate Shepherd to His Love. Um, and yet, <laughs> Because of the rhythm of it, the lyricism of it, it worked. Come live with me and be my love, and we will all the pleasures prove that valleys, groves, hills, and fields, woods, or steepy mountain, steepy mountain yields. And she fell asleep. And so she continued to do that. She continued to recite to her poems that she had memorized. And then when her other daughter was born, uh, Julia, she then read to her poems that had Julia in it. And she'd say, is that poem about me? And she said, when I read it, it is. And so as they grew older, as they became teenagers, she would add more of a particular poem to it, more that they could understand and more that they could appreciate. And then because she was doing this from memory and would sometimes forget, her daughters would then correct her. <laughs> and she said that was the best ever because they, they really had taken it in and then they could have a conversation about it. You know, I think that this means this and at different times in their lives it really did. David Orr, the one who wrote this beautiful book called Beautiful and Pointless, found that poetry had greatest meaning to him when his father was dying of cancer. His father was only 61. And the final days, um, he was wondering you know, what he could do to help him. And the therapist had suggested some different exercises that he might do with him. And, and then Orr had an idea. Why not poetry? Why not use an art form with its obvious stresses and rhymes? Because his father, in the course of, of this cancer, um, was not able to speak as well as he could. And so he wanted to help him with his speech. So the first thing, so in addition to cancer, he had a stroke. And that was the, the difficulty with the speaking. So the first thing that he learned was that you shouldn't ask a stroke victim to read uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins, um, whose crowded lines are too difficult for those of us who do have full use of our tongues, and that Robert Frost isn't much better. In the end, his father developed a crush on the owl and the pussycat, Edward Lear's classic tribute to interspecies romance. <laughs> the two lovers elope in a pea-green boat, and after a voyage of a year and a day, are married and dine on mints and slices of quince, which they eat with a runcible spoon, and they dance by the light of the moon. And David Orr's father tells him, I really like the runcible spoon, and that's close enough to love for me, David wrote. So having written this whole book, at the end of it, that's what it really meant for him, was his father being able to say those words and, and, and really, really loving them. So that's the reason that he found, and each of us will find our reasons, but because I'm giving this platform on the ethics of poetry, I'm going to tell you why I think that ethics is poet, is, it, poetry is ethical and can teach us to be better people. Number one, reflection. I love that you do the meditation here. Can you imagine us doing that at the New York Society? I don't think so. Um, 
that's why I do more poetry there. <laughs> because it gives us an opportunity to reflect. It opens up time and space for us to really contemplate the meaning of life. And if not that deep, the meaning of life, at least the meaning of that particular moment. So of course I have some examples for you. The first one is called The Fabric of Life and it's by Kay Ryan. The Fabric of Life. It is very stretchy. We know that, even if many details remain sketchy. It is complexly woven. That much, too, has pretty well been proven. We are loath to continue our lessons, which consist of slaps as sharp and dispersed as bee stings from a smashed nest when any strand snaps. Hurts working for past, far past the locus of rapture, attacking threads far beyond anything we would have said connects. And so in that, which is kind of a mouthful, <laughs> we get some rhymes, not just at the end, but also in the middle. Um, we also get some sense of a past, of lessons that we may have learned through Hertz. Um, but also coming back around to the beginning, it's very stretchy, and at the end, it connects. So it gives us that opportunity to live in that short poem and really think about the fabric, the fabric of life. It's just coincidental that all the poems in this section on reflection are by women, I just noticed. Uh, but the second one is by Ellen Bass. It's called The Thing Is. The thing is to love life, to love it even when you have no stomach for it, and everything you've held dear crumbles like burnt paper in your hands, your throat filled with the silt of it. When grief sits with you, its tropical heat thickening the air, heavy as water, more fit for gills than lungs. When grief weights you like your own flesh, only more of it, an obesity of grief, you think, how can a body withstand this? Then you hold life like a face between your palms, a plain face, no charming smile, no violet eyes, and you say, yes, I will take you, I will love you again. Right? I mean, that has an incredible power to it. How many of us have felt like we just have no more stomach for it? And yet, I love that image, just as we would hold a dear one's face in our hands. We choose, make an ethical choice, to hold life in our hands and to say, I will love you again. The last one in this section on reflection is by Linda Paston. What we want. What we want is never simple. We move among the things we thought we wanted, a face, a room, an open book, and these things bear our names. Now they want us. But what we want appears in dreams, wearing disguises. We fall past, holding out our arms, and in the morning our arms ache. We don't remember the dream, but the dream remembers us. 
Is there all day, it is there all day, as an animal is there under the table, as the stars are there, even in full sun. And I take a, a, a break there because I always think about, you know, that moment when we wake up, right? And the moment that, you know, the, the dream does kind of remember us in a way. Um, and sometimes for good or ill, uh, for comfort or discomfort, we can't kind of shake that off, can we? Um, and it is there. It's sort of there all day like an animal, um, just like the stars are there or like the sun. Um, and we can, we can then look at it and we can choose to interpret it in some way. We can try to let it go. Will it let go of us? I don't know. But I think we've all experienced something similar to that and to have someone put it into that kind of language um, that grabs hold of us. So I'm wondering if any of you have a poem that has caused you to reflect or in some way, yes, please. Testing, testing. Divorced fathers and pizza crusts. The connection between divorced fathers and pizza crusts is understandable. The divorced father does not cook confidently. He wants his kids to enjoy dinner. The entire weekend is supposed to be fun. Kids love pizza. For some reason involving soft warmth and malleability, kids approve of melted cheese on pizza years before they will tolerate cheese in other situations. So the divorced father takes the kid and the kid's friend out for pizza. The kid eats much faster than the dad. Before the dad has finished his second slice, the kids are playing a video game or being Ace Ventura or blowing spitballs through straws, making this hail that can't quite be cleaned up. There are four slices left, and the divorced father doesn't want them wasted. There has been enough waste already. He sits there in his windbreaker, finishing the pizza. It's good, except the crust is actually not so great. After the second slice, the crust is basically a chore, so you leave it. You move on to the next loaded slice. Finally, there you are amid rims of crust. All this is understandable. There's no dark conspiracy. Meanwhile, the kids are having a pretty good time, which is the whole point. So the entire evening makes clear sense. And now the divorced father gathers the soft-stained napkins for the trash and dumps them and dumps the rim of crust, which are not corpses on a battlefield. Understandably, feels the pizza shop so thoroughly there's no room for anything else. And now he's at the door, summoning the kids, and they follow. Of course they do. He's a dad. I, I used that poem um, on Father's Day. I did a reflection of Father's Day, and that was, that was one of them that I read. It's just, it's very poignant, isn't it? Because it takes something so commonplace as pizza and uses that for a, for a metaphor of, of, of so much that uh, the divorced fathers go through. Thank you, and thank you for reading it so beautifully. Uh, so, reflection. 
A second way in which poetry helps us to become better people is it gives us advice. Kenneth Koch wrote a poem that's 233 lines long. I'm not going to read all of them to you, but I do recommend it to you. It's called Some General Instructions. And so I've pulled out some of those general instructions. And the first two lines are these. Do not bake bread in an oven that is not made of stone, or you risk having imperfect bread. If you feel a law is unjust, you may work to change it. It is not true, as many people say, that that is just the way things are, or those are the rules immutably. The rules can be changed, although it may be a slow process. The problem of being good and also doing what one wishes is not as difficult as it seems. It is, however, best to get embarked early on one's dearest desires. Be attentive to your dreams. They are usually about sex. But they deal with other things as well in an indirect fashion and contain information that you should have. You should also read poetry. <laughs> Do not be defeated by the feeling that there is too much for you to know. That is a myth of the oppressor. You are capable of understanding life, and it is yours alone and only this time. Whatever you experience is both a person out there and a dream, as well as unwashed electrons. It is your task to see this through to a conclusion that makes sense to all concerned and that reflects credit on this poem, your species, and yourself. Now go. You cannot come back until these lessons are learned and you can show that you have learned them for yourself. So those are some tidbits from Kenneth Koch's uh, a poem. I do highly recommend um, that, you, that you check out the whole poem because it is absolutely delicious. Um, it mixes all kinds of, of metaphors and images. So it's called, um, again, Some General instruction, Instructions by Kenneth Koch. Here's another one, and it kind of follows along from the one that you read about uh, divorced fathers. This one is called How to Become a Stepmother, and it's advice by the poet, by the poet Beverly Rollwagon. <clears throat> it starts, remember, this is a test you cannot pass. The 13-year-old asks, where are your kids? When you say you don't have any, she tells you, his last girlfriend did, and we are best friends. Feel yourself slip through the blue of her eyes. The 16-year-old watches you from all five corners of the room. When her father is there, she is pleasant, smiles, asks about your cat. When he leaves a happy man, she tries to kill you in seven different ways. She sets herself on fire and says you did it. She watches your chest rise and fall and hates your breath. If you try to touch her, her arm falls off. She is a sensitive creature. Be patient. Soon you marry the father. The girls come late to the wedding and pull wrinkled dresses from paper bags to stand in the living room crying for their mother. 
They throw all their arms around their father and hold him tight within their skirts for the last time. Stand outside yourself in your silly white suit with the gold buttons. Feel the orchid grieve against your cheek. Finally, the one who hates you most reaches out and pulls you in. Feel all their arms around you. Think, this is my wedding. This is our wedding. Mm. You get everything in there, don't you? I mean, you get, the, you get the hate, you get the exaggeration, you get the passion. And then that final thing is done so simply, without exaggeration, without drama. And then finally, um, I love this one, and you may be familiar with this one as well. It's by Louise Erdrich. It's called Advice to Myself. Leave the dishes. Let the celery rot in the bottom drawer of the refrigerator and an earthen scum harden on the kitchen floor. Leave the black crumbs in the bottom of the toaster. Throw the cracked bowl out and don't patch the cup. Don't patch anything. Don't mend, buy safety pins. Don't even sew on a button. Let the wind have its way, then the earth that invades as dust, and then the dead foaming up in gray rolls underneath the couch. Talk to them. Tell them they are welcome. Don't keep all the pieces of the puzzle or the doll's tiny shoes in pairs. Don't worry who uses whose toothbrush or if anything matches at all. Accept one word to another or a thought. Pursue the authentic. Decide first what is authentic. Then go after it with all your heart. Your heart, that place you don't even think of cleaning out, that closet stuffed with savage mementos. Don't sort the paper clips from screws from saved baby teeth or worry if we're all eating cereal for dinner again. Don't answer the phone ever or weep over anything at all that breaks. Pink molds will grow within those sealed cartons in the refrigerator. Accept new forms of life <laughs> and talk to the dead. And talk to the dead who drift in through the screened windows, who collect patiently on the tops of food jars and books. Recycle the mail, don't read it. Don't read anything except what destroys the insulation between yourself and your experience, or what pulls down, or what strikes at, or what shatters this ruse you call necessity. Do you feel liberated after that? <laughs> I always do. Every time I, I read that, I just feel such liberation, because it really is about what's most authentic, and distinguishing authenticity from necessity. And, and to me, this is the perfect ethical culture poem because I think that's what the work of ethical culture is. It's about authenticity. Right? It's about what's real. So does anyone have a poem that gives advice? Gives advice. We've got the, the, the first 
um, ethical piece of poetry is that um, it's good for reflection. The second is that it gives us advice. Anyone have something close? Yes, please. This is How to Be Old by Mae Swenson. It is easy to be young. Everybody is at first. It is not easy to be old. It takes time. Youth is given, age is achieved. One must work a magic to mix with time in order to become old. Youth is given. One must put it away like a doll in a closet. Take it out and play with it only on holidays. One must have many dresses and dress the doll impeccably, but not to show the doll, to keep it hidden. It is necessary to adore the doll, to remember it in the dark on the ordinary days, and every day congratulate one's aging face in the mirror. In time, one will be very old. In time, one's life will be accomplished. And in time, in time, the doll, like new though ancient, will be found. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, isn't it so true? I mean, we, we definitely, uh, we have to kind of learn that. Yes? Sure. Oh, sure. Um, that one was um, Advice to Myself by Louise Erdrich. And, and I will send this also to Mary so that she'll have this. Okay, great. Um, the third reason that poetry helps us to be better people, more ethical people, is it promotes empathy. And I know we talk about empathy all the time because um, it's, it, whether it's, it's using that expression for the Native Americans, you know, to walk two moons in one shoes, um, you know, putting yourself in, in the other person's position, um, we know that to really appreciate the other, we have to imagine ourselves being the other. And poetry helps with that because empathy is really the basis for ethics. So the first one is by um, Jane Kenyon. It's called Coats. I saw him leaving the hospital with a woman's coat over his arm. Clearly, she would not need it. The sunglasses he wore could not conceal his wet face, his bafflement. As if in mockery, the day was fair and the air mild for December. All the same, he had zipped his own coat and tied the hood under his chin, preparing for irremediable cold. In that short, pithy poem, we enter into the experience not only of the man who's leaving the hospital, but also the person who's observing him. The next one is called Essential by Beverly Rollwagon. She just wants to keep her essential sorrow Everyone wants her to be happy all the time, but she doesn't want that for them. There is value in the thread of sadness in each person. The sobbing child on an airplane, the unhappy woman waiting by the phone, a man staring out the window past his wife. A violin plays through all of them, one long note held at the beginning and the end. And again, that that 
empathy that we need so much. When we learn about um, nonviolent communication, one of the first things that we learn is to st distinguish between sympathy and empathy. And you can see that she just wants her essential sorrow. People around her might be feeling some sympathy and want her to feel happy because that would make them feel better about her sorrow. But what she really needs, right, is empathy, someone to be with her in that. And so I think that for me, this, this poem essential reminds me, calls me back to that, to that compassionate language where empathy is, is more valuable than sympathy. And then finally by Philip Roth Booth, I'm sorry, Philip Booth, finally a man, guys. I don't know how that happened, but finally a man. I did do Kenneth Koch. Um, Small Town by Philip Booth. You know, the light on upstairs before four every morning, the man asleep every night before eight, what programs they watch, who traded cars, what keeps the town moving, the town knows, you know. You've known for years over drugstore coffee, who hurts, who loves, why today in the house, two down from the church, people you know cannot stop weeping. So again, kind of that, you know, that sense, I grew up in a small town, and so I, 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 that image that it brings back to me, but even in a city, you know, those things that you know from watching life and watching things unfold, and those signals that you get, um, that don't need to be explicit, but the messages that you get. So I'm wondering, does anyone have a poem um, that gives you some insight into another person's experience that might help you? Oh, wow. Uh, choices, choices. Mary, make the choice. <laughs> Okay, uh, this is called The Hero's Luck by Lawrence Robb, uh, R-A-A-B. When something bad happens, we play it back in our minds, looking for a place to step in and change things. We should go outside, right now, you might have said, or let's not drive anywhere today. The sea rises, the mountain collapses. A car swerves toward the crowd you've just led your family into. We all look for reasons. Luck isn't the word you want to hear. What happened had to, or it didn't. Maybe the exceptional man can change direction in midair, thread the needle's eye, and come out whole. But even the hero who stands up to chance has to feel how far the world will bend until it breaks him. He can see that day, the unappeasable ocean, the cascades of stone. A crowd gathers around his body. He sees that too. Someone is saying his luck just ran out. It happens to us all. You're all such great readers. I mean, I can feel that you're really, you know, moving those words around in your mouth. That's lovely. And finally, just because it's fun, right? And I, I think that fun, having fun, um, is definitely an ethical action. And so my final poem um, is, and this is um, not only because it's for fun, but because it reminds me of my husband, and we like to tease each other, me especially him. Um, and it's called Him to the Comb Over. And it's by Wesley McNair. I know you've met, you've met Glenn, right? <laughs> How the thickest of them erupt 
just above the ear, cresting in waves so stiff no wind can move them. Let us praise them in all their varieties, some skinny as the bands of headphones, some rising from a part that extends halfway around the head, other four or five strings stretched so taut the scalp resembles a musical instrument. Let us praise the sprays that hold them and the combs that coax such abundance to the front of the head in the mirror, the combers entirely forget the back. And let us celebrate the combers who address the old sorrow of times passing day after day, bringing out the barrenness of midlife, this ridiculous and wonderful harvest. No wishful flag of hope, but thick or thin, the flag itself unfurled for us all in subways, offices, and malls across America. Do any of you have in your possession now a fun poem? Okay, Mary. <laughs> um, this one is called Siren by Robert Bernard Haas. Here is the poem I meant to write but didn't because you walked into my study without any clothes on. <laughs> I had just been thinking of how the aging sun must have lit up the faces of Troy's fallen heroes when you walked into my study without any clothes on. Walked in and stood there, holding a glass of sherry over your left breast, which looked soft and firm as brie. Your tone of voice this morning should have warned me that you might walk into my study without any clothes on. <laughs> I should have lashed myself to my chair and stoppered my ears with wax, but I forgot, and I'm glad I forgot, because when you walked into my study without any clothes on, you sang sweetly, sang sweetly, and I died nobly, like a man. <laughs> That's terrific, great. So I, I hope that you have maybe um, opened up your hearts uh, to poetry, maybe in, an, in a new and different way. Um, and I highly recommend uh, getting online the Writer's Almanac. Um, this is something Garrison Keillor does every day. Um, I don't listen to it because, I don't know, I, I prefer to get it. So when I, when I open up my email every morning, I have a poem waiting for me on the Writer's Almanac. And these poems that you've been reading um, all come from that. I, I started collecting the ones that I really loved and now I've got close to 500 pages just because they're the ones that I just really, really love. And so, and they're usually ones that I don't know. Um, so if I see one by Emily Dickinson, I don't add that to the collection because I have her collected poems. Um, but I really look for the new ones, the exciting ones, the ones that, that really knock my socks off or surprise me or make me cry. Um, so I highly recommend, um, you know, getting, getting on to Writer's Almanac and, and giving yourself that gift of a poem every morning. So in conclusion, 
take home a handful of poems. Mary, what I did when I had some left over is I hung them on the doorknob in my office and I put a sign, don't leave without taking a poem. So if there, so anyone who comes into my office, I encourage them to take one. Um, take home a handful of poems. Put them in different rooms of your home. Stuff them in your purses and briefcases. Tuck them into your pockets. Hide them in your cupboards and drawers. Forget about them. Then one day when you least expect it, find one. Read it aloud. Let the words roll around in your mouth and savor them. Carry the poem around with you all day. Share it with a friend. Fall asleep and dream about it. Wake up and live better than you ever imagined possible. Thank you.